What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joins the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. Welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf, episode nine. This is going to be a little bit different. There will be no guest. I'll be the guest on this podcast. And what I'm doing is I'm taking questions relating to the swing and to golf and other areas of golf, anything in fact, that have come from Twitter followers. And we're going to answer some of their questions and hopefully give you some good information to make your game and swing better. So let's get started. I've got a good list of questions. We'll start right at the start. So let's go and enjoy. I'm having trouble committing to the release of the club. What's the best way to do it? Well, got to remember the release of the club, if you're hanging onto the club with your hands, the release of the club is basically with the hands. A lot of people will talk about using the body. And to a certain degree, the body is involved 100%. But to really release the club, we have to make the hands or the wrists uncock, make that club hit down on the ball. And ideally, we want to do it from some type of angle, not straight up and down. So that's why I discuss the 430 path. So a lot of people don't release the club because they're too interested in one, either using their body too much and just trying to turn out of the way of it. And what that does is slow their hands down, slow the club down, and then they have to use the hands later on to catch the club up. Or they already release the club on the way down in an attempt to create speed. So the club really has nowhere to go now. They've already released it and then they've just got to try and spin their body or flick the club head through. So you've got to remember the sequence. You've got to learn the sequence of releasing the arms. And I talk about forearms when I talk about this. If the forearms are turned, the wrists are set. If you unwind the forearms, the wrists uncock, the club gets delivered. So that is releasing the club. What point in the swing does the 430 path that you talk about happen? Well, the 430 path is just a guideline, obviously, it's a great visual because we need to see the golf swing from our perspective, not from how other people view it. So in a nutshell, it's basically when the hands are somewhere near the right hip, that the shaft would be still up and laid back a little bit. And looking from above, the shaft would line up somewhere near what 430 would look like on a clock. I have a lot of diagrams on my social media relating to this and on my website so it's easy to see 430 path again correlates straight into the previous question if the arms are rotated the wrists are set the clubs up the clubs behind it's going to travel on an arc and it's going to give you permission to release the club and as you release that if your arms are turned you'll also have some body closure and the body's going to go with it so 430 is a great visual, don't have to be ideal, but it's a perfect starting point and a spot to 
aim for to allow you to release the club. Next question, what's the ideal hand path in transition? So transition's a tough one because one, we've taught about swing plane and a lot of people think the swing, the plane of a swing is more up and down. It's in one, one direction and we've seen that with people putting flashlights on the end of their grip and trying to trace the, the target line and things like that. But I'll tell you right now, if you put a, a laser beam down Lee Trevino's shaft or a lot of other players' shafts, it would be nowhere near that target line. It would be all over the place, shooting up the sky and down along the ground near his feet and all over the place until basically 4.30 and let's say 4.30 waist high on the way in and then waist high on the exit. So to make that happen, you really want to feel the hands come out in front of you. You've got to have the hands and arms in front of your body. If they get behind you, either because you drop your hands and arms behind or because you use the body too soon, they're going to get slowed down. They're going to get trapped behind you and we're going to get stuck. That's that bad word in golf, the stuck word. And then we have to fight that club out with our hand action and it doesn't work as well. So even though we're feeling like the hands and arms are coming out, and let's say if you put a head cover or if you're on the driving range and there's another pile of balls just out you know, across from the ball that you're hitting, it would feel like your hands are aiming at that. But for those that have watched my YouTube video where I made a video that said out is down and down is in, you'll understand that the hands will never ever go out as far as you think they are or feel that they are because there's a ball in the way and because there's motion of going down and trying to open and all these different force and pressures that are going to pull you around. So even though the hand path is out, just remember the more your hands feel out in front of you, the more your arms, forearms can be rotated and the more the wrist can stay set, the more the club will be behind you. So even though you feel like it's an over the top move with the hands, and a lot of great players did that, a lot of great players went inside and then came over the top a little bit with their hands, but they did not come over the top with the club. So it takes a bit of work. It's more a visual thing. It's hard for people to understand some of these things because they're not used to seeing it. But again, that all ties in with 4.30 entry. It's one of my drills, drill five. And drill four is the transition aspect of it. It's easily learnt. It's earned though. You got to do the work. And for the most part, no matter if anyone tries to do a good transition or tries to do a downswing that's perfect or where they want to be, you still got to remember you got to know how to release the club first. So that's why I teach things a little bit backwards than most people do. I worry about the backswing transition later once I see where someone can release the club and go on the way through from that spot. The biggest misconception in my teaching, well, it's got to be the 4.30. A lot of people, you know, when I first started talking about a lot of people would initially say, well, I love that. That's perfect. That's a great spot to be. And then all I do is rotate. Well, again, remember, if you just rotate in your body, you're not releasing the club. So I think that's the biggest misconception that you still have to release the club. And when your hands and arms are out in front of you on that 4.30 spot, 
it gives you permission to not only release the club, but to also make your body move. And there is a part two to that. I'd say the other misconception is a lot of people try and say that because I insist on the hands out, 4.30, release the club late, make the body move, and I think that there's a lot of timing involved. But in fact, when you see all my pictures and all the videos and everything, there's actually less timing involved because the club face basically stays more neutral to your center, to the body, the middle of your body. So as your arms are in front of you and your wrists are rotated, the club feels open, but it's still lined perfectly up to the middle of your body. As you release, the club still lines up to the middle of your body. And as you rotate through, the club still lines up to the middle of your body. So your wrist conditions don't change. So there's actually less timing because the club face orientation is very similar throughout the swing and you are releasing the arms and the body in unison. So everything goes together. There's no stalling, no stopping, no club passing by. So they're the two biggest misconceptions. People will understand when they do my stuff for a while or work on it hard or use my assistance that their left and right shots become less left and right and certainly straighter. So there's no timing involved if that's the case. The best way to control trajectory. Next question. Well, there's a number of ways, you know, we can do, we can control trajectories in our setup. Certainly we can move the ball up, we can move the ball back. We've got to remember though, every time we do that, we change the, the club face. We change where our release point points the club. So let's say for instance, our ball is generally two inches inside our left heel. If we move the ball back in our stance an inch or so to try and hit a little lower shot, that club face is gonna point right. If we move the ball forward to try and hit a higher shot, that club face is gonna point left. It's gonna get past where it normally releases to square and then start trying to close down a little bit more because the body is rotating out of the way a little bit more. So anytime you move the ball around, if you do it at address, you have to alter your alignment also. So if you move the ball back, generally you've got to aim a little bit further left. If you move the ball forward, generally you've got to aim a little bit further right. You'll have to work out trial and error how much aim to the right or left is necessary for your action, but it's easy to find it. Just get on the range, play some different shots, move that ball around change your alignments and learn from it. That's the best way to do it. Anyone can tell you what to do or what you should feel, but the only person that can really learn it and what it feels like for you is you yourself. Has any of my teaching changed over the years? Well, not really, not in the last 10 or 11 years. I think I had a really good plan when I first came into effect. I think it's worked really well. I have a lot of evidence in my game and other great players games showing the things that I teach. So no, I haven't really changed anything to be honest. I believe it to be very to the point uh, exhibited throughout history. So there is really no need to change it. I mean, technology, all these different items that we can use the body tracks for the foot pressures and the center of pressure motion and the track mans for the path and the 
impact face and all that stuff i mean that's all well and good they're all great great items to help someone understand why they're doing something but to be honest i've used all those things with my ideas of my swing and the changing of ball positions and the change in what i do post impact to get different trajectories and shapes also and they all they all stand up so I really have no motive to change anything right now. It's going great. Most people that do it, if they put the work in, they get better and they begin to understand it all for themselves. So you're not going to change something if it works well. I'm always hunting or looking, but I, I search on my own accord. I don't pay much attention to what anyone else teaches or talks about. I think you've got to experience these things yourself. And from my experience, it all works and I wouldn't change a thing. All right, here's a little bit, bit of a touchy one. What's your view on stack and tilt? And is there any validity in it? Well, you know, I just never believed in stack and tilt. There is, unless it's a short iron. I mean, when you're playing a shorter iron, your stance is a bit narrow, you're a little bit more on top of the ball. You don't need to shift your weight as much. It's probably a little bit shorter swing because you've got a shorter club. So you can stay in place a little bit more, be on top of the ball and sort of help yourself hit down on it. But as the clubs get longer, you have to get behind the ball. You have to use more of the right leg, the right, uh, right side loading. You've got to be behind the ball because to shift weight through the ball, you've got to be behind it. So I never thought stack and tilt was valid at all, except in the shorter clubs. I know a lot of people tried it. And it certainly helped them to that regard, but I think a lot of people had trouble as the clubs get longer. You just can't be on top of the ball with a long club. If you're already on top of it, you're probably going to fall back behind it to help the ball in the air, or you're going to get too steep. All these different variables, so I don't know much about it anymore. I haven't heard of it lately, so it may have died a slow death, but I think I wrote on an online forum somewhere many years ago that I believe that would probably be the case, so... That's a valid point, but it's just, you know, you've got to move weight. You've got to shift pressure, not body. You don't have to sway and move all over the place, but you've got to create pressure from behind to forwards. And I just don't think that that technique provided that option. What should you try to do or feel in a swing versus the positions that you're trying to get into? It's a great question because you've got to understand that Positions is not golf. All Every position that we see in a swing, even the 430 path, uh, is, is a result of two other things. What's come before it and what's coming after it. So you just cannot put the club in a position and expect to do well. It's a, it's a dynamic motion. There's something that's happened on your backswing or your transition in the legs and the shoulder turn and the hands out or the wrist staying cocked up or whatever you want to do. That's what's fine in these positions. And it's happening, like I said, from what's come before it and also what's going to come after it. So you have to think of the swing as a whole. There is no, there is no real position. It's all dynamic. It's all force. It's all motion. Trying to play position golf is just not indicative of, of how good players play golf. It's golf still a target sport. You can't be thinking too much about what you're doing. Best bet, 
is to have a backswing thought, through swing thought, and be focused on your target because just like in any other sports, that's where the, the player is looking. Basketballers, baseballers, hurdlers, high jumps, footballers, they're all looking out ahead of them at their target or what's coming. A little bit harder in golf because we don't want to have our head tilted to the target. We're looking downwards out in front of us, but our mind's eye has to be on the target. So golf is not a game of positions. Positions happen from proper sequence and a good swing and a great intention of a swing. All right, shift gears into a bit of putting advice. So putting is probably the most individual aspect of golf. We've seen millions of different styles of putting. Uh, Jack Nicholas crouch way over, left shoulder up, right armpit, you know, right elbow way down under his hip and eyes probably a foot behind the ball. Um, Ben Crenshaw, Brad Faxon stood up tall, maybe looked like they were a little bit open with their stance, swung the putter like a gate. Some people used to use the wristy action, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Billy Casper. You know, there's been a numerous ways to putt well. So the biggest thing about putting is to work out a way that one, you hit the ball along the line that you've chosen if you can't do that, you're not going to have much chance of making it. And two, get it on the right speed. So if you can get good speed and good line or start line, you've got a great chance of making a putt. And if you can do that, you're probably going to hit the ball square. You're probably going to hit it with the right amount of loft that it doesn't skid too much or it doesn't bounce around. It certainly doesn't side spin. So there's a lot of ways to putt. It doesn't really matter what type of putty you use. Some are liable to swing more, open up and close a bit more. Some are more straight back, straight through putters styles. You got to find the, the right one. Me, myself, I like to let the putter rotate open or it feels like it does. I want it to feel like a swing, just like my golf swing. I don't want to change too much. I don't want to have my putting stroke to be entirely different awareness or sensation to how my swing works but you know there's tools there's mirrors there's strings there's chalk lines there's putting through tees there's all types of ways to learn to hit the ball online and hit it with the right speed and if you can do that that's putting in a nutshell putting's confidence but if you can confidently strike that ball along your line and have pretty good speed then you're going to be go a long way to becoming a great putter sooner rather than later What's your advice for junior golfers? Well, I guess right now it's difficult to a degree. I mean, when I grew up, uh, the instruction was not as high tech. I didn't really have instruction. My, my teachers were Greg Norman and Jack Nicholas's book and Tom Watson's watching him. You know, I used to love watching all the players and see a couple of things that they may have done and try and copy it on the range. And, and feel it and obviously I had no cameras I had no nothing back in those days it was all feel copying watching the ball flight watching my divot watching the shape so I learned it's a great way to learn I think a lot of people get too reliant on video camera they get too reliant on swing uh, capture um, programs on their computers they get 
too worried in numbers on trackmans and flight scopes. And that's not golf, that's just trying to be perfect. So you can't bring those things on the course with you. If you're out playing, you cannot film your swing and jump it on your iPhone and you can't have a track man out there, you can't do that. So you've got to learn the basics yourself. So I think a lot of kids, juniors need to understand that, whoever they're getting taught by that, you cannot live by those items. You have to understand what your swing feels like. You have to understand how to fix it if it goes off and you have to know how to do that void of all that technology there's a time and place for that stuff but you will become a much better long-term golfer once you can learn a lot of these things for yourself and you don't have to ask a coach every single time you hit a bad shot what you've done wrong or what you need to focus on you've got to learn the game of golf for yourself and hit it on the range that's great work on your swing but for most juniors go play I used to hit on the range, you know, I have a bag of 100 balls, I'd go hit those with a wedge and I'd pick them up, I'd go hit them with an 8 iron, I'd pick them up, we had our own balls in those days, we couldn't just spray the, the club's balls all over the, the driving range, we'd use our own and go pick them up, so that was, that was a task in itself, having to pick them up and it allowed me to focus better because I had to go find my balls and when I hit them out there I didn't want to go searching all over the place it made me concentrate on each shot better pre-shot my ideas of what i wanted to do uh, i did that some days um you know for the whole day or i'd do it in the morning and then go play 18 holes uh, some days i'd just keep playing golf i played 54 holes in a day because you can't just search for perfection on the course you don't hit the same shot twice in a row on the golf course um, you've got to you got to play golf on the course and you can work on your swing and technique and stuff on the range so go out and play more get out and play you don't even have to play with your mates i used to play with some friends at night but a lot of the time i was quite happy just going out there on my own and and working out the puzzle myself so you've got to be very diligent in covering all aspects of the game too there's short game there's putting there's your routine, there's visualization, there's shot shaping, there's so many things involved in golf and every part of them deserves equal attention. So don't get caught up in the swing too much with all the, the technique stuff, all the, um, all the computer gadgets and all the items that allow you to get all these numbers. It's, it's entirely based on you and that's what you've got to do long-term, learn it yourself and you'll be a much better player in the long haul for it. How did you play important shots under pressure when you were nervous? Well, I think that all boils down to how you practice. I think it boils down to your confidence in your ability. There was basically no shot that I was gonna see on a golf course, or very rarely if it ever happened, you know, a crazy lie under a bunker lip or something. There was no shot that I hadn't practiced or prepared for. I used to drop balls everywhere, play shots everywhere on the course, play it from where it lay. I wouldn't tee it up. I wouldn't bring it out in the fairway. I'd, I'd hit on the driving range. We had two driving ranges. I'd play from one side to the other and go under the trees and over them. And I prepared for everything. So I didn't have to be nervous 
on the golf course because I didn't think there was any situation that would arise that I hadn't prepared myself for. And I was confident in my swing. So, you know, under pressure, pressure is just something you put on yourself. It's not, no one else puts it on there. I mean, every shot is basically just as important as, as any other. But a lot of people do put more expectations on a certain shot. You know, even when you're coming down the 72nd hole of the tournament, that shot should not be any more important than the other. We know it's near the end and you don't want to make a mistake and you got a chance to win or you need a birdie to catch up, but it should be the same as any other. And if you treat them all like that, then you won't be as nervous. You'll be better prepared for doing it, which all sort of ties into the next question was how did you prepare mentally for a meaningful round? And it was the same thing. I knew I had the shots. I knew I had a good game plan. I picked out the holes as I wanted to play them. I didn't change that unless the weather really altered a lot or we got to the last few holes and I needed to do something different to catch up or stay in front, something like that. But I was, always had a game plan and I always was confident in my ability. You know, obviously, some weeks you're just not swinging as good or you don't feel as good and you're not hitting the ball as, as well. But it, it doesn't take much and you'd be surprised how well sticking to a game plan can turn you'll swing around and get you back on track rather than thinking too much about the mechanics. I remember actually 1993 Australian Masters, I was, I was leading after two days and I struggled a little bit Saturday, but I was still not far off the lead, maybe coming fourth with a round to go. And I was on the range that morning and I could just feel I was a bit on top of the ball, I was a little bit squeezy shots and they were just sort of leaking left to right. And so I just, didn't fret. I didn't fear. I said, all right. So obviously if I'm on top of the ball, I'm not turning around it enough or I'm not turning behind. I'm not turning through it. I'm sort of staying there. So I just opened my stance up a fraction and it allowed me to turn a bit more. And I just focused on turning back, turning through. And five hours later, I won the tournament with uh, 18 greens in regulation and a seven under par round. So things you know you don't have to pull the whole engine out every time some some things are just little basic touch-ups and that's why you need to learn a lot of these different things for yourself you need to understand what you're feeling you need to understand some quick or easy remedy to make you still go out and play pretty well that day and then when the week's over or the day's over you can go back and work on it again on the range but you can't be playing golf swing on the range uh sorry on the golf course Golf swing is for the range. Golf is on the course. How do I stop crossing the club across the line at the top of my backswing? Well, it's really nothing to worry about. If you look through history, a lot of players did it. John Daly did it. Tiger did it when in his younger days. Uh, Fred Couples did it. Crossing the line is, you know, it's a couple of things. It's, it's, it's a lot of shoulder turn to the top or it's shoulder turn early and then just lift the arms up and point the club over there. So, you know, there's, there's a way, very basic way to, to fix that, you know, just from practicing the swing, look in a mirror and just feel it, you land it off or at least start, hits a few balls where you start at the top of your swing where you think you should be. Because ultimately your backswing, it's not that important. It, it's obviously, it's useful but it's more to create space and it's more to just feel that you 
you're putting in the right spot to get back to the hitting area. So you don't have to be perfect at the top. The range is, driving range is full of perfect backswings that can't hit a golf ball. So I wouldn't worry about it. If it works, fine, but learn how to hit the ball from 430 and beyond and then let the backswing just go where it's got to go based on that. You've got to, you got to not fret about trying to be perfect with a thing such as a backswing because I could run through a hundred players that a lot of them had deficient backswings. They weren't that great. Jim Furyk, Lee Trevino, Jack Nicholas had a flying elbow. Doug Sanders went just past his hip. Arnold Palmer, you know, Bobby Jones went way inside. There's all these different types of moves that worked extremely well. So think of the backswing more as a motion to put the club somewhere where you think you've got to go and somewhere that allows you to get back into the hitting zone in the best way you can. Don't aim for perfect. If you put it perfect and it doesn't get you back to where you want to hit from, then you, you're out of luck. How's the best way to shorten your swing? Well, again, I think shortening the swing, a lot of people overswing because they just lift their hands and arms up. They have no extension. Their wrists sort of buckle and fold and the club has no support. It just it gets long. Some people turn their body too soon and they have to lift their hands and arms up. Some people are so worried about swinging to parallel that they just, again, too much hand travel and they, they try and get a long swing rather than enough. You just need enough shoulder turn. It doesn't necessarily matter how far your hands go back or the club goes back as long as you've got enough turn and there's enough load in there and the best thing you know in my opinion i've done this with millions of students is if you can understand that the hit happens really close to impact and beyond impact you can swing shorter because you've got power to burn later on in the swing most people that over swing do so because they're trying to create all their speed on the downswing and hope that it just hits the ball for them. So if you use a short swing and still had that same logic of trying to whack the ball on the downswing, you wouldn't have much power in it. So a lot of people just swing too long based on that. So focus on a couple of moves like the shoulder turn or shorter hand travel, bigger shoulder turn and pay a lot more attention to what's happening past the ball so you can be a bit more subtle when you downswing or you don't need as much energy built up or length built up to unwind it too soon. It's actually tougher than it sounds to be able to do that because most people don't understand the logic of hitting past the ball. But once you get it, it's really one of the, it's the lost fundamental of golf. Everything that you can do after impact has a great bearing on what's happening right throughout your swing, whether it be the position at the top, your downswing, your impact, whether the club passes you, your hands lead, how your legs work, it's all involved in that. There's one thing that people get out of this podcast today, it's got to be the after impact's important part of the swing. But most uh, track mans and all those tools and everything, everyone talks about impact, it reads impact. But remember, impact is based on what's coming and what's come before. So there's always something happening later in the swing that can make you a better player.
Which coach do you look up to? Well, I think I touched on this a little bit earlier. I really don't pay much attention to what other people talk about or coach. People send me stuff here and there or you flip through social media and you'll see something. But as far as coaching, you only know what you know and you only know what you can do and anything else is really not relevant because you can't do it and or you don't know it. So if coaches or people are reading stuff out of books or they're copying someone else's ideas and I don't really pay much merit to it. I like the people that think think out of the box. I like the people that keep it simple. Um, you know, and as far as golf instruction, I, I think great players are generally good instructors. They may not be able to get their point across because they're players or they were players and they sort of didn't have to know the intricacies of it that they only had to know what it felt like and know how to do it and weren't as good as explaining it but I think a, a good player can really help anyone and you just got to listen you just got to understand what they're doing or you got to delve into it a little bit more a little bit deeper and sort of work out why they're saying what they're saying so you know, I think Butch Harmon's always been a good coach. I don't know if, if Butch does a lot. I think he's a very great um, confidence man. Tells his players how good they are. Make make a slight little adjustment here. Let's them work a lot of it out for themselves. That's simple and that's efficient. And that's easy. He's sort of like me. He doesn't use a lot of the tech tools. You don't you don't need it if you if you're a player and you watch divots and you watch ball flights and you see start lines, you, you can really dissect what went wrong in the swing and then you can work on it from there. It's, um, it's actually, a lot of people hate me for saying this, but it's actually quite a simple game if you understand the things yourself and you're not just continually asking or searching for answers. You've got to keep things quite basic, even though it's a very... Uh, intricate game there's a lot going on in a golf swing but you know there's only a few simple pointers in fact I only teach like five things my main five things is the you know my drills basically and there's first one's 430 into impact second one's leg work footwork third one is post impact fourth one's backswing transition and then fifth one's transition extra and downswing and how they all look can vary on the person, how strong they are in certain areas, how much range of motion they got. But I really only teach five basic things. They're my fundamentals that I sort of came up with, but in the importance that I think you need to learn them. And anyone can do them if you train them enough and it just bleeds and, and builds into your swing and you get to, to understand it. So... You know, I think some coaches probably go overboard. Some coaches change their logic too much. You know, they've got a different theory every couple of years, maybe to sell a book or something. That the idea is to make the golfer better. So I haven't changed my philosophy. I don't really pay attention on anyone else's. I'm really happy in my own skin, what I've been teaching and doing. So I just leave it at that. And the students and their results back that up, that I... I really happy and, and I don't need to go searching for, for too much more. The optimum length of a driver. Well, you know, I think today with the bigger heads, you know, the head's much bigger, the graphite shaft, they've got to be a little bit longer, otherwise they'd be a real feather. But, 
most people play drivers that are way too long, especially when they tee the ball up in the air. You know, if you looked at old sets of clubs, if you ran through from a wedge all the way up to a, you know, we're talking ones and two irons in those days, every club was about half an inch different in length. And then most people had a, so they might have one iron through sand iron, a putter, it's like 12 clubs, they might have a couple of woods. So three woods or two woods. So, and their woods, you know, their four wood was only half an inch longer than their one iron. And their three wood was half an inch to an inch longer than their four wood. And then their driver was half an inch to an inch longer than their three wood. So clubs were very consistent in their, in their lengths and it made golf easier because nowadays if you i guarantee if you took your clubs out and laid them up against the wall here and you got your your sand irons up to your three irons or they'd be you know probably the same they'd be half an inch different along the the whole uh, range of those clubs and then if you drop your 24 degree hybrid out it's going to be an inch and a half longer and if you drop your 21 degree hybrid out it's going to be another inch longer you drop your three wood out there and it's going to be another inch or two longer than your drive and so the your drive is going to be another two inches longer than that there's the gaps between the length of the club is just not helpful for the golfer the longer the club the further they're away from the ball the more trouble they have with it so i think even though today equipment is you know overall uh better in its structure or it's um you know playability i guess or production you would probably call it it there's been some things lost in in the golf equipment ideas and length sells not just length of club but the longer the club the more the arc the more the speed the further the ball's going to go so people are trying to sell clubs based on length and they're doing it wrongly they're doing it to it'll suit the swing they're, they're making people have 15 different swings almost because the clubs are all so foreign and so so different throughout the bag it's much harder to get a flow i remember uh bobby jones always hated his eight iron he said he didn't feel as good with his eight iron club and apparently years later someone checked it you know on a machine and, and it was out of weight compared to everything else he knew it he could felt feel it so golfers are pretty good i, I remember i had a set uh, I, I used to use a set of founders irons that i won a few tournaments with and played really well with them and i at the time it's probably late 90s i was playing with a, a different brand and because these clubs were worn out and wanted to, and I was having trouble with the new set so I took my old clubs into the tour van the founders set I said look just match my clubs up to what these are and I went and played the back nine I came back and the when I came back in after the second nine I said how'd you do and the guy goes we can't do it he goes none of these clubs match they're all this one's the lies a bit different and the, the you know, all the the weights were slightly there was all just different things with those clubs but for some reason i knew how those clubs worked and i played well with them so i think a lot of golfers miss that art now they miss the technique of feeling and being in love with their club and understanding their club that's they just sort of get them off the rack or they get them built by a club maker that tells them what they they should need rather than 
fallen in love with their equipment and knowing what it feels like and how it works for them. Here's a good question. If you could ask Sevi one question today, what would it be? Well, obviously you'd have to ask him what happened to the golf, uh, what happened to the creativity and the imagination of it that, you know, he was such a, a player that could, could do all that. He could shape the shots. He could hit it high. He could hit it low and round corners and through trees and short game like a wizard with basically a 56 degree sand iron. I'd be really interested to see what he thought of golf and he, you know, he probably wouldn't be as good at it or he, he wouldn't stand out as much because a lot of that creativity is is lost. I'm sure he, he wouldn't like golf as much now if, if he was a 23 year old coming along now. I think he would probably, he would not see the Seve that he was, but I'm sure he'd agree with me. Love Seve, got to play with him once and very cool to to spend an afternoon with a, a legend like that. And I'm, I'm sure he'd have some interesting thoughts about where golf is and, and what's happened. Can you talk more about working down the right side? So I talk about that in a lot of my earlier videos. And the reason being is we've always heard people say, you know, get onto your left side, jump over to your left, move left. Now, yes, that happens 100%. That's why all these players said it. But it's more a collection point. The left side really just catches the pressure of being more down the right leg. So we'll see Sam Snead get his famous squat. He, he wouldn't do that by jumping left. Hogan was a slightly different thing. He went into a straight right leg and looked like he fell forward, but he was still pushing down a straight right leg and that's what inclined his hips forward. Nicholas, same thing. You know, he had to push down his right leg because he had his left heel up in the air so much at the top of his backswing. So you had to push right and then you catch it in the left and then you, you keep going. So it does feel like you get over to the left, but it's really, you've got to be more down the right side to keep the pressure on the right side that you can keep driving through the ball with and to keep the body closed off. People that jump left lose their spine tilt, lose their body closure, start moving the club away from them. You know, it's all pretty obvious stuff if you understood that you've got to feel like you stay right for much longer in the transition and downswing than people would have you to believe. You've got to be behind it to go through it and you can't do that by getting over on the left side. The left catches the pressure. Uh, even if you know, if you were at the top of your swing and you start down and someone you could stop and someone drew a line right through the ball and and up your back, let's say you're halfway down on the downswing, I guarantee the mass, the most or the majority of your body and your body weight is still behind the ball if you drew that line down. So you don't want to take it across that line and get it over on the left side. You've got to keep some pressure down the right side to release the whole right side with that's your power side left side's your guide and you got to use that right side through the ball if you go left you'll never be able to do that how did you go about getting clubs built for you before trackmans and all that well like i said i earlier when i talked about my clubs i just had some clubs made i like the look of some and i always stuck to the same shaft and the same grip and same length and I just hit them. You know, I was lucky, fortunate enough that I didn't have to buy my clubs so I could go and test all the clubs and, and find them till they worked or 
you know, play around with them. I wouldn't, I'd put lead tape on a couple of them here and there because I knew they felt too light. Um, you know, my woods, my drivers, and I probably only ever used four persimmon drivers throughout my first part of my golf life until the big metal woods came out and then probably used 400 metal woods since. So you had a favorite, you found one that you liked and you knew how it performed and you really didn't mess with it. Uh, a couple of drivers, you know, I had to redo the inlay or glue it up because the head split a little bit, but you'd do it. You would, you would do that because it was your baby. You knew exactly how that club performed and you wouldn't change it. Same with the, the irons, you'd find just the right amount of bounce on the club that it didn't dig that it, you know, all these different variables that it flew on the trajectory that you want to see when you look up. Uh, I've played with some of the more recent clubs. There was a set of clubs I had that were just launched straight in the air and they went 10 yards further than my normal clubs, but I couldn't play with them because when I hit it and I looked up, I just saw him on the wrong height. I saw him on the wrong trajectory to my eye that I was used to looking at. And I forever felt like I had to keep him down and I would start leaning on him. I, I just didn't like the, the trajectory. I loved the distance of him, but the trajectory was no good. And it affected my swing as a result. I, you have a window that you like to see the ball come out on, whatever club it is, and it didn't produce it. So equipment, bit tougher for the, the average Joe because they're getting talked into a set or they're talked into this or a shaft or based on hitting a few shots into a mat, you know, into a net off a mat. So fitting's very, very tough these days. Uh, I think a lot of people think they have it figured out, but to be honest, I, I don't know if they really do. It's, you can't base a fitting off of where someone's arms hang or, or how they hit a few shots into a net. There's a lot more trial and error. It's not cost effective for someone to keep buying clubs until they find the right set. Obviously they've got to do it in, in some way or another, but I think once you do find a set you like, just stick to them. Don't, don't mess around with different models or different brands. Just, if you love them, keep getting the same set over and over if you can. And technology is not going to get you that extra 1% if you found a set that worked well. Confidence is worth more than that 1% extra that these clubs are trying to tell you they're gonna they're gonna give you by switching to them what's a trigger for getting stuck over the ball at a dress well let's practice get on the range every time you hit a shot you know divide your practice session up first half your session work on your technique and your swing and then your second part of your session you get behind every ball you go back you practice swing you pick a target you change your target you rehearse it you walk in you play it like you're playing it on the golf course. If you don't practice on the range, you're never going to play it on the course. And of course, getting stuck over the ball is having too many thoughts and thinking all these different things that basically ties you up in knots. So it's got to be a certain freedom to playing golf. There's got to be a lot less thinking, a lot more reaction. It's still a reaction sport because there's a target there. I know um, if I on the course or even on the range and I run through my whole routine. If someone had a stopwatch there, I guarantee from the time I started my um, thinking or my practice swing or my walk into the ball and then by the time I pulled the club away, it would, it would be really close. It'd be, let's say, 18 seconds or 16 seconds, like every time. 
And that's not because I'm counting in my head or I'm trying to do it. It's, it's from practicing it. That became my routine. I walk in and put the right hand, uh, the club behind the ball with my right hand. My left foot's dropped back so I feel quite open so I can see. Then I wiggle my left foot into place. Then I waggle and I put my look down and see where my hand position is. Then I waggle again. And I look at the target. You know, it's just a constant thing that I just practiced and did and felt comfortable until it became habit. So you've got to create habits on the on the range because they become your habits on the course. Can you explain the bounce more? Well, bounce on wedges, obviously there's varying degrees. And growing up in Australia, the ground was pretty firm. A lot of the courses, we didn't have sprinkler systems. We just, whatever nature gave us is how we would play. So we tended to use clubs with uh, minimal bounce. So they would sort of dig into the, the harder ground. And that became an issue for me when I started playing around the world because I didn't really understand bounce. I didn't know anything about it. And get on some softer ground and start digging that edge into the front of the ball. You start hitting fat shots and the ball pops up the face and doesn't go. So that sort of allowed me to learn about bounce. And I use a lot more bounce on my club now than I, than I used to. I think my 56 degree has, uh, I think, 12 degrees bounce on it. And I generally just use that. I don't use a 60. So I've learned how to maneuver that bounce around to play on all types of conditions. Although obviously being in America full time, I'm mainly soft over here. It's not, not very dry or hard very often. So, you know, the bounce is there to save you. Bounce is your friend. You can sort of hit behind the ball a little bit and the bounce can try and get past the ball, but you don't want to hit too far behind the ball. That's why they always suggest to swing slightly across the ball. And I try and get my students to do that with their setup rather than their swing itself. If you can swing in a slightly more up and down path or even slightly across path with a little chip or pitch shot, you will manage to get the bounce to hit close to the ball and then get past the ball. So that's what we're really trying to do. You don't want to bounce the club too far behind the, the ball because then you're just going to blade it bunkers are included in this conversation also so you know players will change their bounce you know when the we play the british open the pros a lot of them go get new wedges for the week and they they use less bounce there because of the the firmer ground um, more low bounce clubs sort of pop up higher high bounce clubs tend to fly a bit lower there's all these different variables that we not everyone knows about so Obviously, the design of clubs, uh, you can you know cut back the heel a little bit. And the bounce is the angle from the front edge to the back. So pretty much on a pitch shot and a chip shot, you're trying to use the bounce. Whereas on a full swing, you're trying to use the front edge a little bit more. And that's why 430 path works great because you can rotate the club around and lead with the hands and get that front edge into the, the ground there to hit the full shot. And with pitching and chipping, you don't need that. You don't need to pressure the club around and down as much. You can get that bounce right near the back of the ball and and pass the ball. And it's a real it's a real art to being able to do it. Uh, it took me a while to learn how to use the bounce because I didn't have to do it in Australia. I was more of a digger. So it's um, you've got to find the right looking wedge and you've got to find the one that has the, the correct amount for you. A lot of people use a 
like I do a 56 with bounce and if they used a 60 they'd have one with less bounce so you could alternate them between the hard or soft ground but it certainly takes practice remember you, you've got to try and swing more direct that's why you can open your stance or open your chest and sort of just swing slightly across the ball the face will be pointing at the target which is actually open to where your swing or your stance is aimed so the ball will still go at the target it won't go where you're aimed at but you just got to learn to get the bounce off you know past the ball and a great way to do it is go go practice with a club with a lot of bounce on it and start trying to do it off a bare lie or a bad lie you'll you'll really work out how to get the bounce past the ball and, and use it properly so I, I recently did a Twitter post where I showed hitting three iron, four iron, three iron on three holes of the back nine of the 93 Australian Masters, which I won. Um, I wanted to talk about that because there's a lot of people talking about it. It's, it's sort of a lost art. The, really the litmus test of a good golf swing was how well you could hit a long iron and people still marvel at Nicholas and Greg Norman and Lee Trevino for their, their um, aptitude with the the long club, the long iron in their hand. And we just don't see it today. And you know, the longest club most people have is probably a three iron. And then they've got their hybrids and everything. And hybrids really aren't irons, they're, they're woods in, in disguise. So we, we really, in my opinion, it's a lost art and it's, it's tough on the courses because, and that's the reason why I posted that video is because you just, you know, last year, um, Dustin Johnson, longest club he hit into a par four was a six iron. He did it once for the whole year. And I just hit a three, four and a three iron on three of the last nine holes of the tournament. So there's a lot more questions being asked when you're hitting long irons because you have to be, your swing has to stand up better. It has to be able to deliver that less loft and longer shaft on the ball better. And, and the, the players aren't quite tested with, with it anymore. I was always a big believer in par four holes in a course. Let's say there's 10 of them because most courses will have four par fives, four par threes. So on the 10 par four holes, you should have, you should be asked to hit three long irons into them. Three out of the 10, four mid irons of the 10 par fours, and then maybe three short irons in. But basically now everyone's hitting a short iron, so is it a better test? You know, if you're not hitting the long irons into par fours, they're technically not par fours, they're sort of three and a half. So I just thought that was an interesting video as I was going through stuff because I, I know the clubs that I hit into there and we just don't see it anymore today. And the courses, you know, how do you make a, a hole so long or at least three or four or six holes so long to make the pros be able to hit those clubs in. Well, you don't have the room to do it and you don't have the money to do it. And then if your average member wants to go play that course, he'd never be able to play it. So it's sort of a, a great topic for the discussion about what's equipment done or what's the courses have to do or how a designer has to try to do something. So everyone's got their hands tied. When the people holding the ball are the, the ball people, they've got the, the upper hand in it all, but I'd love to be able to see the, the long iron come back in, but unfortunately the way things are, it's probably not going to happen. All right. So my final one was, we're going to talk about Royal Melbourne, the President's Cup and my experience playing in the very first President's Cup. 
So Royal Melbourne's my favourite golf course in the world. I grew up only about five or six miles away. I went to school just down the road. Um, great golf course. The design of it, anyone can play it, whether you're 25 handicap or a pro. Uh, it gives options on, on every hole. You know, even the little par three up the hill, it's, I don't know what it is now, it used to be the seventh hole. The, the poor player can hit it up the left side and putt it up the middle onto the green. The good player can go at the flag and bring in the back bunker or the front bunker. There's all these different options on every hole. Uh, there's always an opening. There's always a spot that you can play it. And for the most part, in the old days, you could hit every club in your bag every day, no matter what the wind direction was or what the weather was. You would be tested right throughout the bag. So alas, that doesn't quite happen anymore. We've got a lot of great scores going on there in recent years because the uh, it's become a little bit obsolete for the for the tour pro just because they hit the ball so far and hit those lofty irons in that you can you know stop pretty close on those firm fast greens where you know in the older days you had to bounce a four iron up from the right side and use a contour and things like that so it plays very different but it's still my favorite golf course in the world and if anyone hasn't seen it you've got to watch president's cup pay attention to the golf course more than the golf you'll be amazed how good the bunkering is and the contours of the course you know just how it all it all plays out it, it's it's a little bit like augusta when you first go to augusta you can't believe how hilly it is um royal melbourne's quite quite undulating in certain areas not as much as augusta but it certainly tests you with some of the lies you get off downhillers and um, side hill type of lies, but the the bunkering and the green complexes are out of this world. So you got to you got to check that out. And as far as the president president's cup, you know where are we at now? It's it's not as big a hoopla obviously as the Ryder Cup. And the reason being is the Americans kick our ass every year. I think the internationals have only won it once, and there was one tie somewhere out, and and this is the twenty fifth year since it first got played so we've had over a dozen 12 or 13 of them now and america's won 10 of those 12 so until the internationals can work out how to win it's probably got a bit of a slow dying death in it or certainly much less interest in it than it should be because it is a showpiece tournament with all you know, great players, not not all the best players in the world are from Europe and America. There's a lot of international players that deserve the stage for this as well, but we need to to really win it. So, you know, I was very fortunate to play in the first President's Cup back in 1994. We played at Lake, uh, Robert Trent Jones Golf Club in Lake Manassas, outside of Washington, D.C., and... Mine was an interesting one. I, I wasn't on the team initially. I was at all the meetings, but I didn't get selected. I didn't make the qualification. I, I didn't get one of the captain's picks, but I actually got called up on the Monday of the tournament. And I was asked if I was in Japan having a week off. I'd just finished a tournament in Japan. And, and I got a phone call from uh, Mike Bodney, who was in charge of the President's Cup for the PGA Tour. David Graham and they said if I would jump on a plane and go to Washington DC bring my caddy weren't sure what was going to happen one of the players was possibly not being going to be able to play because of an injury and 
can you come? So I did. I jumped on a plane, found my caddy. He was actually at the airport in Tokyo going to work for someone else that week. So that was a battle just to find him at the, the airport trying to converse in Japanese to make sure he didn't get on that plane. But yeah, we flew over to Washington DC and lo and behold, Greg Norman had to withdraw from the tournament. I got to take his spot and I played really well on the practice days. You know, I was on a high, obviously getting the chance to play in that tournament with all the, all these great players and went to the white house for dinner and did all these crazy things that 24 hours earlier, you would never dreamed I would be a part of. So, and I played so well in the practice round that David Graham asked me if I would pair up with Nick Price in the first match. He was number one in the world. He just won the British Open, the PGA, and he'd won the Canadian Open the week before. So I had a pretty good partner. I couldn't say no. I, th I knew I'd have a few birdies of my own. So we did. We, we got paired up and we played against Fred Couples and Davis Love. And this sort of relates to the nerves and pressure because obviously this was something that was all new to me. I'm standing on the first tee with Nick Price and Fred Couples and Davis Love and there's like three presidents standing as well. So that was pretty nerve wracking. And I vividly remember on that first tee because we had a we had a fog delay as well. I was like itching at the bit. We had like two hour delay. So it just all built up. And I was on that first tee and I, it was my turn to hit and I did my practice swing and I stepped up to the ball and I, I sort of went all blurry. I got my, you know, it just went dark. There was, I couldn't see anything. I, so I didn't know where the club, if the club was behind the ball. I assumed it was because I'd put it in there to start with. So I couldn't waggle. I thought, shit, I don't know where the ball, if I waggle, I'm not going to really find this golf ball again. And I was hitting a two iron off the tee. So the nerves got the better of me and I, um, I just did what I could do. I just left the club there, no waggle, really no look and just swung away and hit one right up the middle. So it's a, it's a nerve wracking thing, especially with that being the, the first tournament. I'm sure the guys now have all played in and, and used to, used to the experience of it all. But that was interesting because I know that relates to the nerves and pressure question from earlier on, but I found my way out of it. I hit up the fairway, hit an eight iron to a foot and made a birdie to start things off. And away we went. So it was, um, it was great to be a part of something I can always look back on and people always mention it in that breath that I played in the president's cup. So that's pretty cool. Um, you'll enjoy watching it and let's go internationals. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you found a lot of use in some of those things as a different format this time with me being the host and answering the questions and we'll probably do it again if there's some good feedback so be sure to keep sending some questions in and if you want to get better at your game check out my website it's bradleyhughesgolf.com you'll find all my lesson info and such right there under the online lessons or private lessons tabs and if you want to watch all my latest greatest videos i have a new members site it's going really well i've got over 250 videos and articles on there already keep adding them every week that's at bradleyhughesgolf-members.com there's a nominal fee to be a member but it's well worth the effort the videos have been getting great feedback and it's a lot of fun doing it i'll answer some of your questions in video there also so thanks for listening look forward to catching you next time and as always good golfing